If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll soon be reading the fourth chapter of that book. If you are borrowing a Bible from us in the pocket of the pew in front of you, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 4 on page 896 of that pew Bible. How thankful ought we to be for modern medicine, that God has allowed for us to have antibiotics and immunizations from diseases that would have killed us a long time before we got to this day. The very first patient who received penicillin was was quite near death when the doctors came to him and said, listen, you're either going to die or you get to take this new drug we've developed. And they began to give it to him and he got better very quickly, but they, they ran out. Um, They were so desperate to give more penicillin to him that they were actually extracting it from his urine to re-inject it into him, but they ran out. And the man eventually, even though he got better, died. It was said, the stories are, that the infection was due either to a slash that he received on his face from working in rose bushes, or it was from shrapnel due to a bombing raid back in 1941. Either way, the wounds themselves were unserious. It was the infection that was going to kill him. These things are completely unheard of today. We don't have things like that happen to us today because of this miracle of modern medicine. Back in the day, a typical best practice after scrubbing and cleansing and doing all you could was if certain diseases were there, you had to completely eliminate the bacteria on those surfaces by going to fire. If diphtheria or scarlet fever broke out, You could try to wash the clothes, you could try to scrub them, but in all honesty, the recommended practice was always burn it. Fire is purifying in that sense. It freed the house from the the virus or the bacteria that was plaguing people. And fire works the same way in nature, of course. If, If there's a forest fire, a lot of those fires are actually really good for forests as they clear out the underbrush and allow for new growth. But as we all know, fire is not just for purifying things. It is for destroying things. Fire is the epitome of a destructive force. It brings an end to all that is in its way. It reduces all of it to ashes, bringing purpose and power and material things to an end. And Paul's worked hard for three chapters in this book to make his case against the sort of factions and cliques that have arisen in the church of Corinth. And he has argued that such things stand against the cross. He's argued that they they go against the very wisdom of God, and so they threaten not only the good of others, but they threaten even the salvation or threaten with condemnation those who would go against Paul's charges. So Paul, having scrubbed and disinfected the best he can, knowing how evil this infection is, will do his best to set whatever remains, whether arguments or concepts, conceits or philosophies that have led to such things, absolutely on fire. He wants to remove it all once and for all, root and branch. To do this, he's going to use very strong and quite emphatic language, emotional and colorful, language intended to be harsh so that the pride of the Corinthians might be broken. With those who are weak and those who are broken, Comfort and compassion and balms are needed. They're needed to support with the strength of Christ to help those who are wandering and struggling, lost. This is not the way it is with the proud. 
The proud are never to be won over and never can be won over with hugs or with heartfelt pleas, but with sharp words to puncture, as Paul calls their puffed-up perception of themselves. So here, Paul takes one more shot at ending these factions within the Corinthian church. Let us then, again, seek to end any factions within our midst, whether they are present or whether they are just conceived of. Let us end them all by listening to what the Spirit says through the words of Paul. Read with me, if you would, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of our God. As Paul's final admonition to the Corinthian church to avoid factions, not fractions, do your math, folks. To avoid factions, let us remember first the accountability of leaders. Let us remember the accountability of leaders. How should one regard a leader? Paul's very clear, certainly you are not to regard him as the world regards them. There are problems with the way the world views leaders. If you think 
and you go to a historian and ask them what the great leaders of the past are going to be. They're going to give you political leaders. They're going to give you military leaders. They're going to give you men and women who stood up and said, you will do this. You will go here. You will abide by these rules and these laws. And people followed them. It is always those who wield authority and power. Always those who are responded to by the populace. Jesus makes it clear, though, that that type of rule is not to be the rulership of the people in the church. In Matthew 20, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul here is talking about how you view the apostles. What are the apostles? And he's very clear that, that whether or not there's authority involved, that's not the statement that Paul makes. It's not about his authority. It's quite clear that what makes them, the importance, how you would judge an apostle, is simply whether or not he's being faithful to the master. The picture that Paul provides here is like that of a, a a large Greek estate or a large Roman estate. Romans and Greeks at that time would often put slaves as, as owners and rulers of their household. Those slaves would have great freedom in how they ran that household. And they would have great authority in how they ran that household. And they were accountable only to the master of the house. The son doesn't like how he's being talk to, if the son doesn't like how the house manager is, is uh, distributing goods or organizing things, who cares? If the wife or the wives of the master don't like it, what does it matter? He is accountable only to the one who is the master. And Paul is saying, I am like that. I am accountable not to you. I'm not accountable to the Corinthian church. I'm not accountable to the people who sit in the pews or the people who have listened to me. That's not who I'm ever trying to be faithful for. I am only accountable to God. He says, listen, it's a small thing that, that you judge my apostleship. He's very close to saying, I couldn't care less. Like, it's so small, my concern. He has got some concern, he says, but it's so small. I just don't care what you people think. And you can judge me all you want to. Any court can come and tell me what I'm doing and how well I'm doing it, and I don't care. And he even turns around positively, and he says, I don't even judge myself. I, I don't even know of the bad things that I've done, but that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm acquitted. It doesn't mean that I'm justified. In the end, there's just no human judge for him save Jesus Christ himself. He refuses to be judged by people or to be justified by himself. He knows that there could be hidden things in him, things that he thinks he's doing right, things that he thinks are good things to do that Jesus will one day disclose to him that he was way off on. He is ready to face that. But as far as the judgments of the people who are currently judging him and saying whether or not he's doing a good job or as an apostle or whether we should follow other apostles, he just says, I don't care. I just don't care. His job is to please the Lord. He doesn't care what they want him to be, what they want him to say, or how they want him to say it. 
There's no doubt that part of the problems that Paul is facing here is indeed people in the churches trying to distance the church from Paul. They, they lack a sense of of submission to Paul's own writings. And they, they clearly will start to regard other people as greater than Paul. This is hinted at here. It becomes full-blossomed in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul's retort to all of it is simple. I don't care. Churches need leaders that think this way and who are set in that type of thinking. This idea of being under the Lord alone fights against two problems that leaders in the church possess. And those leaders, by the way, are not just apostles and they're not just elders. Quite clearly, I think Paul is talking about apostles specifically here. But to think that this doesn't apply to other leaders, I I think is wrong. And not just official leaders within the church. Anyone who is looked up to in the church needs to abide by these things. Your faithfulness to God is what matters. This will fight against two problems that many people in the church possess. The first is quite easy, and it comes very clearly with this type of attitude that you care so much what the people around you think. Those who think this way tend to be wishy-washy on the truth. They're always putting their finger up in the air to see which way the wind blows. They will not stand for things, but they will be moved by the winds and the waves of the people around them. But those who who are firm to set in the truth and who are only going to be judged and believe truly that they will only rightfully be judged by God will stand firm on the truth that he has given to them. The winds may blow and the waves may buffet, but they will not move. They're not dissimilar from Luther, who at the Diet of Worms has said, listen, you either need to recant of these things or we're going to put you to death. And he says, listen, here I stand. I can't do anything else. Paul understood this well. In 2 Timothy 4, he says that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They they will not put up with good sound teaching, but they're going to get people who will scratch their itch. They will get people who say what they want them to say. Paul's very clear, that cannot happen within the church. But at the same time, there's a second problem. Men who are capable of taking that kind of stand often fall into another kind of problem. There's a crassness or a lack of care and sympathy for the people that they shepherd. Not caring about your opinion cannot ever, ever, and not caring about you, your judgment of them, not, not opinion, that probably wasn't the right word to use, but of your op- opinion of me or your opinion of other leaders can easily slide into just not caring about the sheep at all. This is precisely what Jesus in John 10 tells us can't happen. The hired hand in John 10 refuses to do the right thing for the flock because they care nothing for the sheep. But if you are truly working under Jesus Christ and you truly want to be faithful to him, then loving the people of God is mandatory. So we would do well to remember that Jesus hasn't simply called us to stand on the truth, but to love others as well. We are to speak truly, not following the desires of people, and we are to love truly, not caving to the displeasure of people. Because it's really easy when people don't like you to not like them back. And it's really easy when they're displeased with you to not care about them at all. 
Paul refuses to do this, even in this letter. Later on, after harsh words to them, even these harsh words and later harsh words, he says, I'm not writing to you to make you ashamed of these things. I'm writing to you, admonishing you as a father. I'm doing this because I, I love you. I don't want to see you fall into to a loss of reward or into condemnation. I want you to be built together. This is the task of every leader in the church, both those who lead in official positions and, both, and those who are lay leaders. You are to say what is true and you are to do what is good. And you're not to be influenced either by the cheering of those who are around you or the jeering of those who are around you. Be unflappable and unmovable in your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Because if you're moved by those things, if you are pulled by those things, inevitably you will draw close to some and you will draw far away from others and factions are the inevitable consequence of them. And notice how Paul ends this whole section from 1 to 5. It isn't a neutral term like recompense. God will come and give recompense to the man. Recompense can be good, recompense can be bad, but he says commendation. The one who stands and does what is right before God, God is generous and gracious to give what is good to that man, to give him his commendation. To avoid factions, remember the accountability of leaders. And, secondly, Remember the acceptance of the least. Remember the acceptance of the least. Paul is not asking anything of the Corinthians, anything of you or I, that he did not first apply to himself. There's nothing like, I command for thee, but I'm free, but freedom for me, or something like that. Paul and Apollos needed the very same transformation in their own lives. They needed these truths to come to them. It's not like Paul arrived at Damascus with Jesus shining in the sky like the sun and become a fully formed Christian in that moment. Someone who, after seeing the risen Christ, was in complete control of his faculties and was in no need of any future maturity or grace. Rather, it's quite clearly just like the Corinthians were. Do you not think that Paul had misformed ideas about how the world should work even after seeing the risen Christ? Do you not think that Paul had to mature himself? Paul needed these things just as much as you do, as much as I do. He might have grown faster by the grace of God. He might have matured quicker because of his deep knowledge of the Old Testament. But he had to apply these things to himself as well. And what he applied was precisely what he's talking about here. And he says, so that you might learn not to go beyond what is written, which is likely a reference not just to what he wrote, but to the Old Testament, which he has quoted several times. And those quotes from the Old Testament are all hinting at the same thing, that the wisdom of the world is a failing, fallen wisdom, and really it is no wisdom at all, and that God's wisdom always stands opposed to the wisdom of the world, which is nothing but foolishness, even as the world thinks that God's wisdom is foolishness. And God is not just opposed to that foolishness, but is an enmity to it, so that by God's own wisdom, the wise of the world and the wisdom of the world will be destroyed. So Paul himself had to learn how to apply this wisdom, how to use this wisdom, how the cross worked in his life. And so Paul asked them pointedly, who sees anything different in you? Who do you think you are? Do you honestly think that you have arrived at maturity? Do you honestly think that you've got no work to do in your lives? You've known the Lord for three years, at best for the Corinthians. 
You've known him for three years, and you think that already all things have been handed over to you? He says, even if those things have been handed to you, they've been handed to you. You brag as though you were the one who got them. You brag as though you were the one who developed them. Even if you are wise, that is not a natural consequence of who you are, of where you were born or when you were born or the special makeup and nature of who you are or your money or your influence or your education, none of it. If you are wise in the Lord, it is because the Lord has given it to you. Then why are you boasting? The Corinthians continually bragged about who they were or who they thought they were. There's a remnant of Greek philosophy that floods the the area here and certainly the Corinthians have bought into. Stoic philosophy talked exactly how Paul sees the Corinthians speaking here. A man named Epictetus once said, Who, when he lays eyes upon me, does not feel he is seeing his king and master? That is a humble man. He was a Stoic philosopher, and he thought, I am wise, and so I am, I am king. You hear that echoed here. I am master. I am ruler over all things. Plutarch, talking about those same Stoic philosophers, said, but some think the Stoics are just jesting when they hear that in their sect the wise man is termed not only prudent and just and brave, but also an orator, a poet, a general, a rich man, and a king, and then they count themselves worthy of all these titles as if, and if they fail to get them, they're vexed. They, they, they claim that they're rich. They claim that they are full. They claim that they are satisfied. They claim that they have everything. And if they fail to get it, then they don't understand what's going on. Sounds exactly like what the Corinthians were claiming. They are full. They are rich. They are the kings of the earth. And Paul says, oh, that it would be so. Because if it were so, if it truly, you, you were the things that you think you are, then maybe I could get in on it too. Maybe we could kind of reign with you. But he says, no, it, we don't get to live like that. This is a picture of the Roman triumph. When Roman generals went out and they did something great, there's qualifications for these things, but they could come back and have a parade in their honor. These parades were gargantuan, incredibly expensive, lasted sometimes three or four days. They would begin with a procession of the slaves that he took from the lands that they won over, including the leaders of that land. Far away at the end, coming in last of all, would be this Roman general who the triumph was for, behind his four-horsed chariot, riding in splendor and in majesty. Paul says, you, you talk like you're the man at back. You talk like you're the, the man who has conquered. You talk like you were the ruler and the general. The apostles, the apostles are the slaves at the front, bound, heading for their own death. Signs of a great honor given to the conquering general. You think that all of this is you, but that's not how we live They think that they have already triumphed, and Paul knows nothing but suffering. You are honored, he says, but we are despised. You are strong, but we are weak. We labor and thirst. We are hungry and homeless. We have nothing in the world. We're hated by the world. We're due to die. We're like refuse and scum in the world. That, that last is a very picturesque word. It, it's like, it's a particular word that refers to something that you would scrape off, like barnacles from a boat or things stuck to the bottom of your shoe. 
that you just want to get away from you, that isn't good, and you scrape off. It literally refers to the scraping off of trash. He says, this is what we're viewed as. So what's Paul's point in saying this? It's not just to provide a counteraction between the way the Corinthians are thinking and the way that he lives, although that is true. It's not just that. Through the whole faction comments, it's clear that the Corinthians were not just latching themselves onto any old bloke who happened to come by, but onto people like Apollos and Paul and Cephas, were the three that Paul mentioned specifically. Two of them are known apostles. Apollos could possibly have been an apostle. They are trying to associate themselves with those who they think are great within the Christian church. And Paul's whole point, whole point here is, you think we're great, but we are the ones who are despised the most. We are the ones the world looks down on the most. Paul doesn't necessarily want the Corinthians to be persecuted, hated, reviled, or a spectacle of death to everyone else around them. He says, you are to imitate me, right? But he doesn't mean do it like that. And there's a couple of reasons why, and I think that they're important to say right off the bat, because he's not telling them to give up any sort of status or to give up any sort of good that they might have in order that the world could look at them like they're refuse. That's not what Paul's saying. First, he says very clearly he's not writing them to make them ashamed. He's not doing that. Secondly, Paul often talks of his suffering this way as good for the people of God so that they might not suffer with him. In Colossians 1.24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, that's a very difficult verse to understand, but at the very least, what Paul is saying is, I suffer persecution and reviling in the world and hatred of the world so that you don't have to. He's like a lightning rod for it. The more people are focused on hating me, the less they're focused on hating you. Paul, who would write that, certainly doesn't want them to start suffering for no good reason. And third, it's quite clear that Paul isn't choosing such suffering. He says explicitly that God is the one who is exhibiting us like this. Who makes us like the refuse of the world? It's God who does that. God is the one who has put us out in front. God is the one who makes us seem like we are heading for death. God is the one who has done all all of this. What I think Paul is saying is this. If you think the apostles are important and worthy to follow, if you claim me or Apollos or Cephas, you know the importance that you you attach to us. And if that's true, you need to know this. We are the least. We suffer more in the world and we are held in the highest disrepute in the world and dishonor by the world. So if you have us, if you think that we are worthy of following Who is less worthy? If you can accept us, who would you not accept? You ought to have anybody because anyone could be better than the apostles in the eyes of the world. Anyone's better than us. Factions and cliques and groups within the church are a useless work. They undercut the gospel and they're mutually exclusive with the types of lives lived by those who preach the gospel. The apostles suffered wretchedly in the early church. They were weak, frankly, by Greek standards, worthless. So Paul says, imitate me. As a Jew, Paul would have known very well what it is to accept people that he at one time would have thought were below him, which is every single person in the Corinthian church. 
Before he came to Christ, he would never have eaten a meal with them and he certainly wouldn't have been in fellowship with them. But now in Christ, he not only counts them as his equal, but he is willing to serve them and count them as his betters. Would you not do that with me, Paul says. Imitate me. So he says, I'm sending Timothy to you so you can be reminded of our way in life. Not necessarily in suffering, but in loving and in fellowship and in unity with one another. He uses a strong family language. I am your father. You've got countless other gods, teachers to lead you, but I am the one who led you to the Lord. Follow me. Now, I think, again, we need to be reminded of the types of problems the Corinthians faced here. Three years, basically all they had from the time that Paul came to them till he writes this letter, right around three years is the time frame that they have. Do they have a Greek Old Testament? They might. It's not like those things were just piled up at the library. But even if they had it, you have read the Old Testament. You know that things are difficult to understand in there. You know that the wisdom that is found there is is difficult to mind without understanding Christ. And even if they got an 18-month trial by fire of having Paul with them, for a year and a half, Paul was there with them, teaching them and leading them. That is not enough to make a fully formed Christian. Three years is an incredibly short amount of time. They, they would have had to fill in the gaps with something. They would have had to, to try and figure out how they were to handle their lives and how they were to work out this Christian thing in the wider world. It makes sense that the Corinthians would have struggled with this. Why do we? Why does the church? Because we don't have those problems. We have seasoned, wise people apparently, leading churches. We have people who have the word of God given for them, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. We have warnings about these particular things, and yet we still fail, and we still fail, and we still fail. We want to count Paul as ours. We love Paul, we love Peter, we love the New Testament, we love the epistles, we hold them up, this is the word of God, these are our apostles. We accept them, we parade them around, as great men of the faith. If we accept them through Scripture, what right do we have to reject anyone else who confesses the faith of Jesus Christ? Now, it's quite honest that we've got to determine whether that faith is a real faith, a true faith, but no one in this church is below you. No one in this church is beneath you. Factions and divisions within the church signify that you believe that you're better somehow. Or it can even work in the reverse, that you think that other people think they're better than you and so you don't want anything to do with them. And Paul has none of it. He says you can't think that way. We continually, even though we have all of these advantages, try to fit in with the world, to have our own, own ways. We've got our own difficulties when it comes to accepting and embracing other people. But if we hold up these Bibles, if we claim them as the word of God, knowing that they were written by the refuse of the world, then should we have any problems at all accepting one another in Jesus Christ? Avoid factions by remembering the, the acceptance of the least. And thirdly, avoid factions by remembering the authority of the Lord. Remembering the authority of the Lord. The end of this passage, Paul says that he has heard something about the folks who are causing these problems. He says they're arrogant. They're puffed up with knowledge. 
Specifically, they're puffed up against Paul. They're telling the Corinthians, listen, Paul left you. He's not coming back. He won't make it back to you. You don't have to worry about Paul anymore. We're here. Follow us. Paul's very clear. If the Lord wills, I'm coming, which becomes a contention in the second book, but he nevertheless wants to come back to them. And he says, when I do, we're going to find out how powerful these blokes are because they think that they've got the power. They, they're great at talking. Let's see when I show up what kind of things they really have when it comes to power because it says the kingdom of God is not one of talk. The kingdom is not a kingdom of philosophy or of reason. It's not that such things aren't important. You probably know me well enough to know that I think that such things are important, but that's not what the kingdom is truly about. The kingdom is about the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit shown already in the hearts of people. Paul says, I came as a weak and worthless guy preaching this absolutely foolish message before you, and you accepted it. And the only way you could have done that was by the power of the Spirit. So he says, when I come back, that same power was going to be in me. The same power that was miraculous, that you would believe that some, some backwoods Jewish man, who you already think, by the way, not just, not just Jew is already somebody who's set aside as weird and odd to these Gentiles, but he wasn't a mainstream Jew. He was from the backwaters of Nazareth, and that this crucifixion that happened in a place that you would never visit and aren't going to ever visit— was somehow the turning point of the entire world and the way that the one God who rules over everything is going to save all of humanity. And some reason, you bought into it. You believed that. That is a miracle of the Spirit. That is the power of the Spirit. He says that power will manifest itself again. Now, I have no idea what Paul meant when he said that. I have a sneaking suspicion, although it's just that, that he had no idea either. He didn't know if it was going to be sort of Palpatinian lightning coming from his fingers or if he was somehow going to just have them convinced of the truthfulness of what he said and the Spirit would convict them. But one thing was certain. The Spirit's not playing around when it comes to God's people. So the damage that was being done or the damage that was being threatened would be met with power. Whether that power would have been shown in signs and wonders, whether that power would be shown by Paul showing up and people being convinced by his presence, we don't know, and it doesn't actually matter. The bad news is, for those who are causing division within churches, the Spirit will find those who cause such divisions and who cause such issues in churches and will deal with them. The Bible repeatedly says it is a fool who says in his heart there is no God. Realize that that's not some sort of atheistic mantra. The people who would have said it would have believed in gods. They would have believed in spirits. They would have believed in higher powers. They just didn't think those higher powers were ever going to do anything about it. Paul says, that's stupid, guys. It's foolish to think that the spirit will not come and defend the people that are rightly his. God will show up and will demonstrate his love over his people. It might not be when you think it's going to be. We might not even have it done to us how we think it ought to be done, but it will be present with the people of God. And while that's bad news for them, it is incredibly good news for us. These kinds of factions and divisions cause damage. 
long-lasting, heart-wrenching, faith-hindering damage. But God will not let injustice stand, and he won't let his people suffer forever. He will make it right. So as we fight to stay unified, as we hear the words of Paul and seek to humble ourselves, to honor those who are among us, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, regardless of what sort of social standing they might have outside of these walls, in here, we do our best to honor one another more in the Lord. Remember, the Lord will come in authority. The Spirit will show up in power to give comfort to his people and to repay all who do harm to them. The Spirit will show, the arm of the Lord will be known, and his people will be safe, and the truth will win out. Paul will be moving on to other things. Chapter 5 changes topics immediately, and it is clear that Paul is done talking for the time about these factions and cliques within the church. They are temple-destroying, they are cross-denying, they are worldly, arrogant attempts to puff up the pride of people while demoting others. For those who feel they might be demoted, left behind by the world, who feel like they are scum and nothing, who lack power and status in the world, they are to know the power of God and the wisdom of God and the wonder of God who is able to take those nothings and make them into something so that those who think there's something in the world might be shamed when they see what the Father will do with them. So know the Father who loves the least of his creation. Know the Son who dies in his care for the least of the creation. And know the Spirit who gives us right wisdom in the power of the cross. As we finish these four chapters, let us be one striving for the same goal, hunting for the same prize, working amongst one another that we might present everyone mature in Jesus Christ. We have been called by one Lord through one baptism in one spirit for one goal, to make the world see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We do that by our unity together. We do that by our love together. As Jesus said, it is by your love, by your love that people will see me and the truth of who I am. Let us end by reading a passage from Ephesians 4 as Paul writes to the churches. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from within, who, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is our task. Let us strive for these things with all we have. Let us pray. Father, our Lord Jesus prayed to you on the night that he was betrayed, asking that 
all of us may be one, just as you, Father, are in Jesus, and Jesus is in you, so that we might all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent him. We echo that very prayer this morning. May the unity of Crossway Christian Church, may the unity of the church universal be a demonstration of the truth of Jesus Christ's work for us and his great gift to this world. May he be glorified by what he finds in and among us. Let the Spirit remove any evil factions from among us, and may any pride or arrogance in us be repented of and stricken from our midst. Have mercy on us in these things, Lord, that you might be glorified in your people. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.